We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. History tells us that between 800 and 1100 AD was the golden age of Arabic science. Well, it isn't history that I'm getting this from. It's from Hassan Hassan, a columnist for the national newspaper in Abu Dhabi, the UAE. He's also a contributor for The Guardian Foreign Policy and Carnegie Endowment. He graduated from the University of Nottingham, the UK, with a Master of Arts in International Relations. During that period, Hassan says, the Muslim world was the beacon of innovation that triggered Europe's Renaissance and the Enlightenment periods. But after that time, he tells his readers, Islam turned its back on science. If you're a Muslim, most likely a devoutly religious one, who is happy about this state of affairs, well, that's your choice, isn't it? Who's to blame or to take the credit for that rejection of science? It seems that most people hold Abu Hamid al-Ghazali responsible for this state of affairs. He lived between 1055 and 1111 AD. But Hassan Hassan says that that's not true, and he is innocent of any responsibility for that change. Hassan says that the one-man force driving Muslims away from science was actually Abu Ali al-Hassan al-Tusi, better known as Nizam al-Mulk, the Grand Vizier of the Seljuk dynasty between 1018 and 1092. For the first time in Islamic history, religious studies became institutionalized because of the new winds that were blowing through the palaces of Baghdad. The smart Muslims dropped science like a hot potato and did the smart thing. Religious studies were seen as a more lucrative career path. That was where the big bucks were. Up until then, science and Islam were intertwined, like the strands in DNA's double helix. Century on century then passed, Islam that had been such a dominant and feared force in the world at first started to hit the hard defensive walls of Christian Europe, which brought what up until then had been the irresistible advance of Islam to a grinding halt. Defensive resistance of the Christians to Islam, with the advances in science-driven technology in particular, hastened the decline of Islam. The West began to advance into Islamic countries. Stalemate turned to defeat. The first of many great insults was the arrival of Napoleon with a small force of French soldiers and scientists to add insult to injury, who thrashed the Mamluks and then marched on the promised land. It was other European powers, mainly the Royal Navy, that ended Napoleon's success in the Middle East. 
the Ottoman Empire went into a slow decline and eventually died the death at the end of the First World War. But then a little bit at a time, slow at first, but gathering pace much more swiftly then, change did start to sweep through just one country in the Middle East. It was the British Mandate of Palestine, the promised new Jewish homeland. And this is what happened. In part 28 of this series, I told you about the British Passfield White Paper of 1933. It recommended suspending Jewish immigration until the farming techniques of the Muslims could be brought up to modern standards. That was a forlorn hope. Just to remind you why, here are a few reasons. Most of the land that was owned in Palestine was owned by the Muslim Effendi, the notables. Mostly absent landlords, sometimes living in other countries like Egypt. Even if the land happened to be owned by the Fellahin, the peasant farmers, the outcome was, in the end, the same. The peasant farmers were charged exorbitant rents by the notables. If they were tenants, all farmers, tenants or freehold owners needed to borrow money. The money was loaned to the peasant farmers at exorbitant rates. Typically, and for the best of reasons, the Fellahin peasant chose not to invest in farming equipment. If you couldn't pick it up and take it away with you when your debt forced you to flee, what was the point in owning it and leaving it behind for the Effendi? The peasant farmers, the Fellahin, chose not to plant olive trees or vineyards or anything that would grow and couldn't be harvested in the next season. If the farmer couldn't sow it and reap it quickly, it wasn't worth the effort. All you would be doing would be benefiting somebody else. The British soldiers serving in Palestine during the time of the Arab Revolt from 1936 to 1939 were astonished to see the Muslim farmers using wooden ploughs, which the soldiers imagined them using in the time of Jesus, except that the Muslims didn't set foot in the Holy Lands until over 600 years after the time of Jesus. Another downfall of Muslim agricultural practice was an integral part of Muslim farming practices the goat. So useful in so many ways, but what a disaster. One of the worst characteristics of the goat is that it can climb up into lower branches of trees, killing even mature trees by gnawing off their bark. W.B. Fisher, in his book Middle East, wrote, Unrestricted grazing, particularly by sharp poisoned tooth of the goat, is one of the fundamental causes of agricultural backwardness in the Middle East. The poorly educated Muslims weren't to know. Their trusty goat was really their mortal enemy. And you have to add to the bad mix of Muslim fellahin agricultural miseries the Bedouin nomads who robbed and generally made life miserable. Think movies like Kira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai and Sam Peckinpah's The Magnificent Seven. The Jews, on the other hand, were busy using science, in particular the science of agronomy. The Jews wanted to make the best use of the land in Palestine, and they knew that the way of achieving that was science. In part nine, I talked about the groundbreaking, that's a good word to use here in this context of agriculture, work of Aaron Aronson into agriculture. He was funded first by Baron Rothschild. 
He also got funding later from American Jews, with which he set up a research station at Atlit. The Jews were destined to quickly leave the Muslims behind in this field, and they did. This was perhaps the first field where the Jews coming into Palestine made their mark. The Muslims, inspired by our old friend Nizam al-Mulk, were a proudly, profoundly ignorant people. Only 2% of Muslims in Palestine could read and write. I gave the classic story of the unexpected ways that this inverted snobbery about learning could make itself apparent in part 7 of this series. I told you about Roderick Davison, an American historian of the Middle East, who in his book Reform in the Ottoman Empire, 1856 to 1876, told this story which wonderfully puts this problem into the spotlight. He wrote, The Muslims opposed innovation. Gevdet Effendi, later Pasha, who began to learn French in 1846, had to do so secretly for fear of criticism. So the shattered, unscientific world of the Muslim began to be challenged in the most shocking ways by the Jews, especially the Jews arriving from Europe. In the first 10 years of the British mandate, Jews from abroad funneled at least £40 million into Palestine, and it didn't all go into agriculture. The Jews rapidly began making their mark in Palestine not long after the Balfour Declaration on 2 November 1917, and from the time that the British Army under General Allenby had conquered Jerusalem on 8 December 1917, which happened to be the day of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. This development happened many years before the British Mandate of Palestine had been born. Chaim Wiseman, one of the great Zionist leaders, had once joked that a Jewish state without a university is like Monaco without a casino. Now on 24 July 1918, General Allenby drove Wiseman in his Rolls-Royce up Mount Scopus. There, the foundation stones were laid for the Hebrew University by the then Mufti, not yet the notorious Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Anglican bishop, two chief rabbis and Wiseman himself. Observers couldn't help but notice that the Mufti looked sick at heart. I don't wonder. Jerusalem may have been conquered, but the Ottoman armies were not yet a distant memory. Within earshot, the Ottoman artillery could be heard booming as the guests at the ceremony to mark the beginning of work on building the Hebrew University, saying, God save the king, and the Zionist anthem, Hatikva. Weizmann commented with pride, Below us lay Jerusalem, gleaming like a jewel. After that ceremony, Wiseman continued his mission by meeting His Royal Highness the Emir Faisal, representative of Arab nationalism, after which the two representatives began the process that concluded with agreement between Jews and Arabs on the possibility of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine that would be recognised as the State of Israel. As you might remember from Part 13, Faisal was it all in favour of the creation of the Jewish state at the Paris Peace Conference at Versailles. How times change. 
When the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus opened in April 1925, it had on its board Albert Einstein, Lord Balfour and Sigmund Freud. Not bad. It was a rather hollow imitation of the whole level of actual Jewish education and learning that in 1931 saw the Pan-Islamic Congress held in Jerusalem on the backs of the bloody massacres of Jews in 1929 put forward as one of their demands for a Muslim university to be opened in Jerusalem, presumably to be paid for by the British given the lack of literacy and the views that most Muslims had had for centuries about the harmful effects of education and science, this seems to me like an odd request, a strange ambition. Where would such a university have found its students? The pace of change in Palestine was quickening as more Jews arrived. Palestine, never a country, as I have revealed in earlier programs, indistinguishable from all of the other Muslim countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa until the arrival of the Jews, even before the Zionists from Europe, began to undergo a rapid change to modernization with the benefit of Jewish money and a very well-educated and literate Jewish population. Up until the early 1930s, Jaffa had been the main port of the British Mandate. It left a lot to be desired, frankly, Lighters had to be used to load and unload ships. That meant small, flat-bottomed vessels would have to shuttle backwards and forwards from the port to the ship, or vice versa. That involved double handling of every item that was being imported or exported. Haifa, an Arab-slash-Jewish city, became the new port of Palestine in 1933 on the initiative of the British government. Its facilities allowed ships to berth at the docks and unload there. Cranes could easily and quickly unload and load the ships. Haifa took over from Jaffa as the busiest and most important seaport in Palestine. And it had another important, enormous benefit. Palestine Railways set up its headquarters in Haifa. Nesha Cement Works, the largest company in Palestine, also set up its headquarters in Haifa. Nesha was owned by a wealthy Jewish industrialist from Russia. I have to pause. How does that even work? Communist Russia? The workers' paradise? Where everyone's equal? Except for this guy, and who knows how many others of the party's faithful. Everyone's equal, but some are far more equal than others, as George Orwell observed in Animal Farm. Jews poured into Haifa... They created a building boom. In 1918, Jews made up just one-eighth of Haifa's population. Four years later, in 1922, their share of the population had doubled. By 1938, at the latest, probably earlier, the Jews made up the majority of the population in Haifa. As Maya Sikali tells us in her book, Haifa, Transformation of an Arab Society, 1918 to 39. The next development in Palestine in 1934 was also huge. Between 1924 and 1927, the only airport in the British Mandate was the airport in Kalandia. It wasn't a civil airport for use by the citizens of Palestine. It was used exclusively by the government, mostly the military, and for important British officials to fly into Palestine, 
usually on their way to visit Jerusalem. In 1931, the British government appropriated land from the village of Atarot and expanded the airport for use by civilians as well as its other existing users. The new expanded airport opened in 1934. This was another huge link with the outside world, closer connection with Europe and indeed North America. It was no small step. David Ben-Gurion called it the most important thing next to the Balfour Declaration. It also dramatically increased the independence of Palestine, especially the Jews who had connections with Europe and America, from the Muslim world which surrounded it. There followed another huge lift in the importance of the port at Haifa, and hence ultimately of the importance of the Jews to Britain, although you'd never know it with some of the things that were soon to happen. The terminal for the Iraq Petroleum Company's pipeline carrying oil from the oil fields in Iraq was opened in Haifa. It was clear that the development and opening of its modern port made Haifa the natural place to build the terminal for that important oil pipeline. The terminal also had major, major strategic importance to Britain. It supplied the Mediterranean fleet. With the beginning of the Arab Revolt in 1936, things were destined to change in relations between the Jews and the British. Some were turned for the good by the Jews, but some were turned against the Jews as Britain would make some decisions based on their urgent need to prepare for another major war in Europe. More of that in another program. It's difficult to say what effect these modernizations of Palestine that were coming about only because of the presence of the Jews in Palestine, were having. They were certainly significant and far-reaching. The anti-scientific attitude of the Muslims, the great diversity of Muslims living in Palestine, many, probably most of them, citizens of many neighbouring Muslim countries, doubtless attracted there by the opportunities that the Jews were creating. But these same Muslims were also repelled by what was happening. It had only been less than a generation, 20 years before, when every Muslim knew that the Jews were inferior to them. Like the cry that went up when the 1920 Easter Uprising began, part 14 of this series, led by the Grand Mufti, the notorious one. Palestine is our land. The Jews are our dogs. Now these people, the Jews, were becoming so important in Palestine that they were leading to changes, which many of the Muslims probably didn't want. So it was time to do something about it. When did something in history start, and when did it end? Endless debate there. So I'll tell you what a couple of historians say. There isn't much in it, so in this case, near enough is definitely good enough. I'm talking about the Arab Revolt. I'm going to say that it began on 15 April 1936 and ended on 17 May 1939 when the British White Paper, which the Muslim newspaper Philistine called the Black Paper, was released. The Arab Revolt was a turning point for the Jews too and they undoubtedly agreed, for once, about that Muslim newspaper's description of the White Paper, but for the opposite reasons. That's for another program. The rest of this program, and probably the next at least, are about the Arab Revolt. The Arab Revolt didn't end on that May 17 date. Acts of violence continued, 
but mostly the high levels of violent activity were, after then, a thing of the past. Israel Hazan was a recent immigrant to Palestine. He'd left Salonika in Greece and moved to a town called Florentin in Palestine, a neighbourhood between Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Its population was mostly made up of Jews from Salonika too. Hazan was nearly 70. He came to Israel to retire. As the Bible says in Proverbs 19.21, man proposes and God disposes. Soon after Hazan had arrived in Palestine, his son, a carpenter, did something that happens to carpenters. He had an accident and lost a few of his fingers. That put Hazan back to work again. He picked up his old business of buying and selling poultry. He bought chickens from Muslims in Nablus and the surrounding areas and farms, and then brought them to Florentin for slaughter and sale. On the morning of 15 April 1936, Hazan set out for Nablus and the surrounding Muslim villages and farms, with his truck piled high with empty chicken coops. His driver was a young Jewish neighbour, Zvi Dannenberg, who happened to be a member of the Haganah, the unofficial military organisation of the Yishuv, the Jewish community. Not that that mattered on this day, because Zvi was unarmed and just driving his old neighbour around. The day was drawing to a close. It was time to head home. During the trip, in the hills between Nablus and Tolkarum, they spotted a roadblock manned by Muslim men, their faces covered with the Muslim country peasant headdress, the kefia. You'd know it. Typically, it's that black and white checkered cloth that if you're old enough, you have never seen Yasser Arafat out of. Bandits robbing people on the roads was pretty much par for the course in these parts. These Muslims asked Huzan and Zvi whether they were Jews. For the benefit of their victims, the Muslims told them, Go and inform the police and the press that we are robbing this money to purchase arms and take vengeance for the murder of the holy sheikh Isa din al-Qassam. That sounded like they were just going to be robbed, period. Hazan and Zvi were told to turn off their engine and their headlights. Soon another vehicle pulled up behind Hassan's vehicle. The driver was Jewish, a man by the name of Nafchi. His passenger was a man called Noll. Noll was a German from a German Templar village near Tel Aviv. Germany was now under the control of Hitler's Nazis, and the Nazis were quite popular with the Muslims. Nothing of this incident that I'm aware of, though, says whether this was a factor in what happened or what the politics of this German were. These men, too, were asked to hand over their cash. The German was told to stay put in the vehicle he was in, and the Jew was told to go to get into the front of the truck and sit with Hazan and Zvi. Hazan began to murmur to himself, What will be our end? He was soon to find out. More cars arrived at the roadblock, all driven by Muslims. Money was extracted from them, and they were allowed to continue their trips. The gunmen then returned to Hassan's truck. They had already demanded money from the men, but they renewed their demand for money from Dannenberg. He told them he didn't have any more. Hassan begged the men for mercy. The gunmen then shot all three of the Jews. 
These were the first Jewish victims of the Al-Thora Al-Aribia Al-Kubra, the Great Arab Revolt. Like the murderers of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife at Sarajevo in 1914, these murders lit the fuse that was going to have far-reaching consequences. But more of this in the next program, because what happened over the next few days was important to set the course for where all of this was going, right up to the Nakba itself, the Muslim name for the disastrous war between the Jews and the Muslims in 1948. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.